Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Lanasek, and Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy. With me is my co-host, Joel Wanasek. Joey Sturgis is doing some massive website maintenance. Like, uh, I think we're kind of turning into a real company now because we have to tear the site down for a day to do maintenance. It's crazy. But uh, with us also is one of my favorite guitar players, Mr. Andy James. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're stoked to have you. Um, I... I'm going to introduce you real quick to people who don't know who you are, even though they should. And then I want to launch right into questions because I've got a bunch. But uh, yeah, Andy's a guitar player out of the UK who you should know about. You know, if you look at him, you'll probably think he's a metal hard rock player. But like all incredible players, he his uh, skills span the musical spectrum. You can find him at the uh, AndyJamesGuitarAcademy.com, which is a really, really incredible instructional site. I've checked it out myself, and there's a ton of great content on there. It's put out four solo albums, as well as four albums with the band Sacred Mother Tongue. And uh, he's the winner of the November Nail the Mix uh, mix competition with, with the Papa Roach song, Face Everything and Rise. Did I miss anything? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I've got a, another band at the moment, which is uh, Wearing Scars, which uh, it's kind of like a new band. It's been like a thing for a year or so. So I've been doing that as well. But no, you know, yeah, you pretty much covered it, I think. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, well, we're up to date. Well, okay, so now on to my questions, which is... I had now, no hold I... on, hold on a second. Hold All on, right, I got fine. a question. Andy, do you even 15 pull off 12, Ben 15, or what? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Uh, oh my God, pentatonic, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like E minor to me. It definitely sounds like E minor, depending on what your guitar is tuned to. But uh, there's a long-standing joke I've had in my studio, a completely random, off-topic nonsense. Sorry, I apologize. Of course, Andy would know the joke, considering you guys have never spoken before. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to inform him, then he'll be in on the joke. Next time I talk to him, we'll have that joke and we'll have that thing together. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. Don't don't deny him that. So, all right. So you've, you've listened to Kill Em All by Metallica, I'm assuming, right? I have, yeah. Every fucking guitar solo is the same, like, six-note pattern. And it's yeah. so great. I mean, some people look at it as bad. I look at it as great, if that makes sense. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So 15, pull-off 12, just you know, became very legendary. So, you know, a lot of guitar players, that's how we greet each other in the shred community is, dude, you even 15 pull off 12 or what? Right. Okay. What about a bend on 15 on a, on a, yeah, a bend string? is cool. You can bend 14, you know, I mean, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, you know, most people have got their kind of in jokes and stuff like that. I mean, I normally get like ones on my posts and stuff saying, oh yeah, but can you play smoke on the water or something like that? Or, <laughs> well, can you? Uh, I don't know, actually. I've never tried. I'll probably play it in the wrong key, but yeah. yeah I don't know how to play Maybe it. I should give that a go one day, like, see how I get on. Think you can handle it? Give it a shot. Um, <laughs> do you mix professionally, or is this just some, like, side thing that you decided to get good at, and well, I had no uh, idea? I, to be honest with you, it's like... I mean, I can go back a little bit to when I was, like, 16 and in college, because I, I left school... 
I, didn't, I, I finished school kind of like the normal age that you're supposed to here. You can stay on a bit longer if you want, but I didn't because I was rubbish at school anyway. Um, <laughs> so I kind of like went me. to... <laughs> yeah, I, it just didn't interest me school. Like There was just nothing worth learning, really. It was good to like hang out with people and stuff, but that was about it. And then I just went to college. I did like... It's, it's like a kind of recording technique stroke performing arts thing but really all I went to do was kind of meet a bunch of guys and play in a band which is something I'd not really ever done before so you know the recording side of things I mean back in what was it when I was 16 that was probably I mean you probably know more about the state of the recording industry then than, than I did because I didn't really pay attention but it was like 96 97 so it was all like you know kind of digital kind of external hard drive recorders and stuff but some of it was tape as well yes I remember those days very well yeah. So, I mean, for me personally, I just, there was too many knobs on a desk, like all the, all the studio stuff just didn't really make sense to me. And all I wanted to do was play guitar. So that's kind of what I did for two years. So I did, I went on the course and didn't even bother learning anything about it because at the time it didn't really interest me. But what I did remember is like, I learned a bit about Cubase and stuff and, and, to be honest, that's the only sort of door I've ever used. I've never really bothered with any of the other ones. Um, you know, much later in my kind of recording career, when other people have recorded the stuff, it's always been Pro Tools and that. So that was kind of the early thing. I didn't really pay attention. I kind of wish now that I had, you know, because I'd have learned a bit more about, you know, how to kind of mic up a drum kit and sort of, you know, deal with some other session stuff that kind of went over my head at the time and uh so yeah um but I think I've always been interested in it like ever since I started recording properly with Sacred uh we worked with a guy called Scott Atkins who was a guitar player for Stamping Ground I don't know if you know them never heard of them uh, not right. familiar with them sort of UK hardcore band kind of thing okay but anyway he he'd sort of learned a load of stuff off of andy sneep and that and kind of thought well you know i'm gonna give it a go because i'm you know this band they were on century media and everything and it kind of didn't work out so he quit and started doing his own studio and then i heard about him for a friend of mine and then i called him up and said you know would would you be interested in recording the band he was like yeah you know come down or whatever so we did it was like in his sort of shed in his back garden but He'd done a few bands and stuff. I think he mixed Silosis, Conclusion and Age, and, you know, he'd done a bunch of other stuff. In fact, he was kind of doing that record as as we went in. And, yeah, it was really interesting, like, because I'd never really sort of recorded guitars and stuff before, and, like, the way he'd, he'd go about recording guitars. I mean, he was, he was like Adolf Hitler in the studio. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, with, with or without mustache? <laughs> no, without, without, yeah. Bummer. I mean, I think it's safe to say that nobody has rocked that facial hair since... Uh... Dude, I was just going to say that. I mean, he was such a dick, he ruined that whole facial hair style for an entire... <laughs> Millennium, Millennium, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe in the year uh, thirty-two or something. Probably the name though. Adolf as well. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So, all right. So, go on. So, this guy was uh, Hitler Junior. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, I've already gone in there. I mean, I was, you know, I could play pretty well at this point. Um, I'd been doing the Lick Library thing for a couple of years and stuff, but. So, yeah, you know, it came down to the sort of metal rhythm playing. Now, I hadn't really sort of done a lot of metal stuff, so <laughs> kind of the weirdest thing happened. Like, I, I got hired at Lick Library to do more of the metal stuff because they needed somebody to do that. What kind of stuff had you done up to that point? Well, I, I don't know. It was kind of, 
you know, sort of heavier rock stuff, but none of the kind of, you know, real sort of, you know, down-picking, palm-muted stuff, you know, and, and that yeah. kind of kill switch sort of thing, which that was kind of really my introduction into sort of metal properly was kill switch engage because, I don't know, for some reason, like, metal had kind of bypassed me through my whole sort of growing up. Um, you know, there's metal elements of, say, like, Dream Theater and, you know, like, Racer X and stuff, but it wasn't really, like, Metallica or Pantera or, you know, Megadeth Dude, or that Racer kind of X. stuff. Hell yeah. yeah. Finally someone else who gets so it. So much reverb though, isn't it? <laughs> Especially on the snare. <laughs> That's not the Steve Fontana sound, you know what I mean? Like Prairie Sun Studios. You've you got to have literally, I think he must have just dialed that reverb unit in and left it. <laughs> Is For, there another setting? That's the only one I would ever use. <laughs> I don't know, honestly. But I don't think people were using samples then. So in order to get the snare to sound so massive, I suppose that was just it really, wasn't it? Just whack a load of toilet on it and hope for the best. <laughs> whack a load of toilet. <laughs> Amazing. So dude, um, I need to go to England and yeah, dude. English correctly. <laughs> whack a load. We don't of, have God. We don't have anything. Whack a load of toilet. <laughs> well, I guess that's referring to the acoustics of most toilets, especially probably a a big tiled bathroom. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just said what you meant, but what a great way to put it. Oh, shit. That's awesome. Our programmer here in our office for our uh, drum software company, he's from uh, Scotsman. And, oh, okay. uh, he has some pretty ridiculous phrases that we yeah. enjoy very often. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, Scottish is a very different form of English to say what I speak. Oh, but, yeah. Um, I don't know. Sometimes people um, ask me if I'm from Australia when I go to America. So You don't sound Australian. No, but I, I, it just depends on whether those particular Americans have been exposed to anything across the Atlantic before or not, really, or were they just sort of, I don't know, seen names at home and away or, or something. Or anything they outside their hometown. Yeah. They watch those movies with Hugh Grant. Those yeah, like pussy love movies <laughs> that all women like and every man hates. I don't know. No, I've only ever watched. Uh, it was uh, he's Wolverine, isn't he? And then he was. Um, what else has he been in? There was a good film he did in ages ago called Swordfish. That was good. I remember. No, that's he, not. He, that's he, not Hugh Grant. That's uh, what's his name? Um, oh, that's Hugh Jackman, right? Yeah, that's that's Hugh the Jackman. One. I mean, whatever. Same. Oh, Hugh, Hugh Grant, right? Yeah. Sorry, Hugh, God. I, Hugh, I, I Hugh Grant's he, Hugh Grant's English, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Four weddings and a funeral. He's in all those British love movies from like the 2000s that were really popular that my girlfriend at the time made me watch and I wanted to kill myself during. Sorry, yeah. I feel like an idiot now. I kind of got the two huge mixed up, mixed up like <laughs> same first name. That's it. Totally threw me. So you got introduced to metal through a protege of Andy Sneap? Yeah. Is yeah. what you're saying? Um, okay. Well, he kind of just you know, said to me, look, you know, maybe you should, because basically in a polite kind of roundabout sort of way, he was going, look, you know, you need to get tighter. So I was like, right, okay, fair enough. So I I literally spent like a week just going through these albums and stuff and, you know, kind of getting a bit better at them. You know, I mean, I'd already heard these sort of, this stuff before, but I'd never really actually sat down and, you know, messed about with it too much. So were you already like a guitar, like, freak at that point? Or... Like, had you committed yourself? Yeah, I'd spent all my... I mean, you know what it's like? You spend all your time soloing and your kind of rhythm chops suck. So you have to kind of apply Yeah, what but no learned. one cares about the riff. Like, <laughs> all they care about is vibrato. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I had that, you know, bucket loads. Like, growing up with, like, you know, listening to sort of uh, Paul Gilbert, Ingvay Malmsteen, Zach Wilde, Nuno Betancourt, you know, all of those guys. 
you know, they've all got like killer phrasing and and technique as well as being able to create memorable melodic solos, you know what I mean? So that was kind of the thing I liked. So anyway, you know, I, I, I got better at it and came back in the studio and then I just kind of knocked the stuff out. It took me about a week or so just to get myself used to it and then got back in there and, and sort of did it really. I mean, I'm normally quite a fast learner when it comes to just having to learn stuff which is kind of bringing me on to the, the mixing thing in a minute. But the, uh, yeah, the guitar process and stuff, because he used to just like stick a click on, you know, for the most part, and I'd just play the same riff over and over again for about a minute. And then rather than double track the stuff to a guitar that you'd already done, he would, he would chop it and then just put them together, pan them, and then it'd be like, fucking hell, that was pretty tight. But you wouldn't, because like any recording that I'd ever done before, I was trying to match another riff and trying to hear it, and it would always be off you know not really knowing how to fix it so that was an interesting thing for me recording guitars because that's if I've got something that's really technical now I'll do it to a click so I can just loop sections and then put them together but if it's something that needs to be with the band you know like something that's a bit looser or whatever I'll tend to do it with you know with the drums or or whatever it is so I'll try not get too surgical with it but I I think you know especially with the way I've learned how to track guitars now it's it's pretty difficult not to do that because you hear loads of problems with stuff man that's how Emil and i would record our guitars um right. just set the click and go for like five minutes yeah. and there's just something that happens after like a minute or two with the with your dominance over the riff yeah you know what i mean like it just it it goes from just something oh, you yeah. can play to something that you just own and that's when it really starts to sound good yeah, it locks in. After about a minute, your muscle yeah. starts to go, right, yeah, I know what you're trying to do now, and it lets well, you Well, here's do it. the problem. If you put any human into your guitar playing whatsoever on a recording, and you shred in any possible way, shape, or form, you will get 4,862 hate emails directly in your box for even attempting to not be a robot. Yeah. Well, yeah. fuck them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not the same with solos, though. Like, with solos, I'm I'm a bit more like, look, you know, I'm going to have to play this stuff live, so I either record stuff in one hit and I know that I can do it pretty consistently every time, or I'll stand up and play, and if it's too hard, then I'll I'll modify it. So do you record them standing up? Yeah, the, um, the, the album that I did with Scott, which is my self-titled one, which is probably the the only one that I've done properly because the first two records I sort of did myself with a friend of mine and I hadn't I had no idea like what I was doing so and they kind of sound horrible now I can't even listen to them but yeah so I never recorded those that way but um when we uh when me and Scott worked together on that self-titled album it was very much a case of really trying to pull some different stuff out the bag and you know he would he would have this thing where he he had like this uh well, I suppose you'd call it couch, but we call them settees. <laughs> anyway, um, so he, he'd sit on this sofa, let's call it that. Um, All right. And uh, he would just be like down looking at something or whatever, and I'd just be standing there going for like take after take after take after over like a solo section. And I'd be looking at Scott and he'd just be sat there like looking at the floor and I'd be thinking, God, what is it going to take for him to just get excited about what I'm doing and then I'll just kind of get really angry and then I'll just play some 
total nonsense and then it would just it, it would just some life will be injected into him it'd be looking at me going what was that what was that and i'd be like oh god i don't know i can't remember he's like that's what you need that's what you need so it'd be like every time i managed to get him out of that sofa it meant that i was doing something that that was good or what he considered worth recording so uh i think actually that process it, it brought a lot out of me on that record that actually is is sort of what i gravitate towards now you know in terms of like my kind of sound if you if you know because i feel i feel up to that point i never really figured out what it was i was trying to do so is there uh did you ever analyze what it was about those parts that uh got him excited as a producer yeah i think um i, th- I think they were just kind of like using something that wasn't the bog standard norm for like you know, guitar album. I mean, I'm not saying that that album necessarily is like, no, no one's ever done that before or anything like that. But for me, it was something that I had not quite done before in, in terms of a few ideas and stuff. So I, I learned, right, this is what I need to do. Um, I don't know, say like if you're playing some diminished stuff and then you throw a bit of Mixolydian in there, it's quite a nice mix up if you like, uh, rather than just have every, have everything the same. Because, I mean, like, diminished, because you can play everything the same in three fret sections up the neck, like, you you have to yeah. kind of break up the tonality of that a little bit. So it's it's kind of learning. Because he'd, he'd sit there and go, oh, what would Marty Friedman do? Like, because uh, he'd play some weird and wacky sort of, like, thing. And then I'd be like, right, yeah, okay. That wasn't what I was thinking, but, yeah, let's let's just go with it and see what happens so i think it ended up getting me to think about stuff slightly differently it's, you know melodically as well trying to come up with things that would be you know anthemic and i think the whole kill switch thing as well like with the influence and stuff like that is is a fairly big influence on the way i write heavier instrumental music because like my songs are pretty much written like you know you have like verses and stuff where you've got the sort of screaming or the shredding i suppose would be the same sort of thing and then it kind of opens out into these choruses and stuff and i always liked the way they wrote the songs like that but i'd never really heard too many instrumental guys writing like that i suppose well because with instrumental music you really have to find something to replace that vocal yeah to carry it and it's hard for like four and a half five minutes Definitely. Yeah, you just screw off over the whole song with nonstop soloing. Like, why would you want a melody? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, when you got to fill, like, an hour's worth of CD, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm even like worth it now, solo. you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, no, that was actually uh, when Emil and I did our instrumental album, Avalanche of Worms, yeah. back a while ago, that was one of our biggest challenges was how do we keep this interesting for like 45 minutes without any vocals and not just have it be like one of those boring albums that's solo from start to finish. Yeah, It was a lot of work. It was really tough to find uh, sounds and melodies and leads that are interesting enough to replace a vocal. Yeah. I think, you know, that's kind of the thing as well. You know, I mean, you've got guys like Satriani that, you know, even though sort of like technically it's not like the most sort of challenging guitar music, I think from a kind of musical perspective, it was always something that I liked about the way he constructed his songs and, you know, the melody and stuff. It actually sort of took you somewhere. I mean, you know, not to be like sort of cheesy or spiritual or whatever, but you know, sometimes you can just listen to something and, and appreciate it for its technical ability. But then 
over and above that, you might not listen to it again, if you know what I mean. There's not really anything that makes you come back to the actual piece of music. To Yeah, totally. Every like neoclassical guitar player, they literally are all reliving 1985 yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember when I was big in the shred scene, there was like, you would get these press releases. I used to have a very big guitar site back in the day called InsaneGuitar.com. All right. And I think I've heard these, of that. All right. Cool. I mean, it hasn't, I haven't done anything with it since maybe 2006 or seven, but right. you know, back in the early 2000s, like that was one of the places and you get all these press releases. It'd be like George Bellis teams up with this superstar singer and this superstar from that band. And you know, there's all this hype. And then you listen to the music. You're like, ah, I've heard this band like 74 times this week. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, the thing about Satriani is Satriani writes actual songs yeah. and I feel like that's why he's such a great guitar player because you know he shreds he's got some great licks and a unique identifiable style but I always appreciated that Satriani could actually write a melody that sticks in your head he yeah. could actually write a hook and that's yeah. something so many guitar players have no idea how to do yeah I, I think you know it is a it is a struggle as well because quite often the the bar that those guys set especially using you know modal concepts and stuff like that I mean as soon as you play anything that's like Lydian it, you're either sounding like Steve Vai or Joe Satriani so you're kind of like well I can't use that mode it's ridiculous I don't know how I'm going to be able to use that you know so because of all these players that come before you it becomes very difficult to find your own you know voice within that I suppose you so how do you go about doing that well I just I mean I don't know if I have really but I mean I I don't really listen to a huge amount of like instrumental stuff now and I suppose at the time I was doing it writing those songs you know, back then, I suppose the ones that people keep going back to now that they say that they're some of their favourites. You know, I was listening to actual bands and and stuff, so I wasn't re really listening to guitar players at all. So it was a totally different influence um, because I, I found up until that point, you know, some of my stuff was very reminiscent of a lot of my influences and stuff, which, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you kind of want to rise above that a little bit and, and end up with something that people can associate with, with you, I guess. I, I don't know whether it's something that you can engineer. I think it's something that just happens naturally over over time. I mean, not now I don't listen to any instrumental music. Well, I think there's something something about what you just said is some. I'm gonna want to key in on that. It's totally natural for your influences to come out in your style, and so I feel like if if you're in a thrash band and all you listen to is Slayer and Metallica. Testament. And Testament, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your thrash band is probably going to sound like a triangulation of the three. Yeah. And it's probably not going to be very original. However, if you're in a thrash band and you know your metal, but you spend all day listening to soundtracks or EDM or pop or whatever, singer-songwriter stuff, you're going to have something different to bring to the table. And you're not going to have to engineer it. Um, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, <laughs> God damn, Brendan. <laughs> that was pretty metal. Yeah, yeah, edit that out. Okay, so yeah, you're not going to have to engineer it in. <laughs> no, it's leave not... it in. Leave it in. That's All the right, good leave stuff. Leave it in. Ugh. God damn. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, that sounded nice. I don't it know how you're going to get a segue and... into that and out of it again, like without it sounding weird. Oh, uh, we can just leave it. Fuck it. Um, <laughs> but but uh, it, engineer. Maybe that's a bad word. I, I say fabricate. Right. Like I don't yeah. think it's something you can fabricate. 
I think you need to honestly sit there and listen to other styles of music long enough to where they become part of your, I guess, part of your DNA. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I've kind of had like influence influence from like you know blues players and stuff along the way. I would say blues. I mean, you know, people that are rock players that incorporate the blues in their playing. You know, guys like Gary Moore or um, you know Rory Gallagher or you know like. Um, Andy Timmons is one of my all-time favourite guitar players just because he can do it all, but he actually has got amazing tone and phrasing and, and all that kind of stuff. And I've always loved the way he approaches blues-type rock playing, you know, because I suppose for me, if, if you listen to kind of like the older blues guys like, you know, Eric Clapton and B.B. King and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's great, but for me, it never really blew my skirt up you know what i mean it was like <laughs> <laughs> say yeah. that one more time you what sorry i'm kidding uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry i'll probably say something else stupid in about five minutes blew me skirt up is okay that's, that's a new one that's like a that. great one all uh, right okay uh well more where that came from yeah so i, I don't know I, I like guys with a bit more like edge to the sort of playing you know what i mean so but still doing like an older style if it, um, that makes sense. Is this sacrilegious if I say that I went to see BB King live and I fell asleep? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether. I, I mean, I don't want to comment really, but yeah, I, I don't know. yeah. Now we have to delete the whole podcast episode because some guy <laughs> on some forum is going to hear that comment. They're going to be like, "Oh, dude, that guy can come fight me." Well, this is the thing. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing with the internet, though. Like, people don't understand that an opinion is an opinion, and it's not fact. You know, it's like... Well, it's can, fact that I fell asleep. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, it is. that's fine, you know. I mean, you can come and beat you up for that. Just like that Blue Man group, huh? <laughs> yeah, I almost fell asleep at Blue Man group as well. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Um, It's a Vegas show with a bunch of drummers in blue paint doing all kinds of crazy stuff. It's really cool, but uh, oh, I, yeah, I just... I, I just, you know. There wasn't enough guitar playing for us. <laughs> no, but but sorry, go go on. I can't remember what I was saying now. I'm just thinking of blue people in paint. Well, you were talking about blues guitar players with edge. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, even like Steve Ray Vaughan, for example. I mean, like, he had a real kind of aggressive nature to his playing that, you know, for, for me, I, I instantly gravitated towards that kind of thing. So uh, if I approach any style like that away from, you know, uh, rock or metal or whatever, I, I do approach it with some degree of aggression as well maybe i should go and see if therapist or something <laughs> that's probably a good idea for all of us um so one question that i've got for you speaking of great players you've played with some pretty big names and also some names that aren't that big can you differentiate what the traits are between like some of the really really big name guys like what sets them apart? How do you mean? What like playing wise or personality? Yeah, or? playing wise, or is there something where you can point to like these guys that are at the top? They tend to have something in common, or they're just better. He wants to know why Ingve is the only dude that can wear leather pants and kick on stage and get away with it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe he's got and like, still be cool. Maybe he's got twenty pairs, and just when he's got his <laughs> costume change, he puts another <laughs> pair on. <I> don't know. <laughs> I've got no idea. Or maybe he, he uses the correct method of wearing leather trousers and puts talcum powder on so he's got you know movement <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay. I don't know. I mean, I've never wore a pair of leather trousers, but I've seen people and know people that have and do. So um, I know that that's a technique used. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, what was the question again? I totally forgot. I'm thinking about Igbane. Sorry, pants. my Thanks. fault. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. <laughs> it was an amazing reply, though. Like, that was a talcum powder and leather pants, like, that's it. What sets? Okay, right. I remember now. What sets? I don't know. You know, most of the guys that I that I've met and know from you know that are big shredder, well, just big players in the in the in the industry, they're just really cool blokes. They're just normal people that you know they've either got lucky or they work really hard at what they do. And I, you know, in my experience, it's normally the people that don't want to do the work and that haven't really got anywhere that seem to be the asshole demographic you know what I mean so I think that's one thing and I think another thing as well is like you know there's always this argument about nature versus nurture kind of thing and I suppose it depends on the type of person you are but for me I'm quite an obsessive person so if if I really want to do something or learn how to do it um, two things happens one is I'll just do it even if I don't know what the fuck I'm doing and and still manage to make something happen and two I'll I'll be doing it for long enough where eventually I'll pick up some theoretical knowledge along the way and that will just help you know give names and or anything to the stuff that I've already learned kind of thing. Let's uh, discuss real quick an example of Andy James getting obsessed about something and um, what what happens. Well, I mean I mean, if you want to talk about the the November now the mix thing, that's kind of a perfect example, really. I mean, All right. we. Um, I mean, very quickly, I I was on tour last year with um, Mark Tremonti uh, with my band, uh, with his solo band, and uh, before we'd even started off the tour, um, I'd had some real bad pain in my left hand, so I was taking like codeine um, tablets, you know, painkillers and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, I was taking them for kind of longer than I should have been. Um, anyway, we were on the way, and we had to stop in Switzerland overnight before getting to Italy for the first show. Uh, Did they take them at the border? No, 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 no. What happened was oh. I'd, I'd taken another another friend of mine's uh, sort of painkiller, which is the same kind of thing, but just a lot stronger. And then when we got there, I had some alcohol, <laughs> and... Uh, I, I, well, I don't know what the fuck happened, but it nearly killed me anyway. So it was it was a really bad experience. I was in the car park, like, almost passing out, throwing up. And then for the next couple of days, I was thinking about maybe I don't want to be alive anymore kind of thing. It was pretty bad. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what happened. Anyway, I thought, like, after a few days that would subside and I'd be fine. But it took me eight months to get over that. <laughs> So what with anxiety attacks and panic attacks and being like scared of going to sleep and all that kind of stuff, I was just like, I had no idea, you know, what had happened. So anyway, a bunch of therapy sessions later and stuff, and I'm, I'm okay now. But for for the most part, I think it was probably back in January or whatever. My singer Chris Clancy, he told me about this website because you know we're back in. Oh, I know in, Chris. Yeah, he's great. So, yeah, so we're talking about, you know, like mixing and stuff. And, I, you know, I really, you know, I was mixing some demos and stuff. And he's like, you know, I think you've got a good ear. You know, maybe you should probably just give it a go, like, and, and see what, you know. So he said, there's this website you can, you know, go and, and join and have a look and stuff. Uh, and I think when I joined, it was neck deep or something you, you guys were doing. So it was that. And I had a go at that. And I, I didn't really do a very good job of it. But, um, it kind of made me realise that there was a lot of stuff that I needed to learn as well as, you know, just being able to hear what was wrong with 
certain mixes or, or anything like that. So I'd, I'd been watching, you know, all the videos and, and you know, you, Joel and Joey uh, talking about, you know, how to do this, how to do that. Loads of really awesome, like, tips. Pretty quickly kind of getting my head around it. Messing about with some demos and stuff and then backing and forth, you know, with Chris going, look, you know, what does this need? What does that need? And then he'd just give me some pointers and then I would start to get a, a picture for like, you know, where the guitar should be, you know, how to sort of do your drums properly, how to organise sessions and stuff just to make the workflow a bit better. And then, and then, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, he sort of said, because he knows I, I'm really like into that kind of Cherko thing anyway, like, you know, with the Death Punch stuff and In This Moment and Papa Roach. That, see, that album that Kane did is like one of my favourite kind of pop rocky metal albums you know what i mean so i really love the sound of that anyway so when he told me that kane was going to come on and and do this thing i was kind of like a little schoolgirl, you know what i mean <laughs> i was kind of quite excited about it so i guess like as soon as the stems were available i got them and i, I was i spent like probably a good couple of days just really trying to figure out how to get this to sound any good you know without really knowing a huge amount about what i'm kind of doing to be honest so i didn't even send the mix to chris either i just kind of did it i got it and i, I played it in the car and on my headphones and, and i was kind of like right i think this is okay i referenced it a bunch of times to the sort of the actual track i mean i couldn't get it anywhere near as loud i i mean honestly i mean now i know how he did it but i, I was kind of like how the hell has he got this so like loud it's just really, i mean that's probably one of the loudest albums i've ever heard anyway like compared to anything else but uh you know him and his dad seem to be able to just make these productions that just sound so massive you just wonder like what they're doing but um interestingly enough when i watched kane do like especially the drums and stuff he'd use some electronic hits as well in the kit which is what i did i had some i've got some dubstep things in a folder and i used uh, a sub bass drum and I used uh, something on the snare as well just because I couldn't figure out how to like get the snare sounding that big and that loud and still cut through the mix kind of thing so I used about six samples that's like the secret sauce on his drum Is sound it? I think so I mean along it's with a that, massive contributing factor yeah, yeah absolutely along with everything else he does right the electronic samples make a huge difference do you know what was weird I, th I think that maybe the, the reason why I used it is because when I read the uh, the synopsis of like what everybody had to do like it was it was it said about electronic samples and I wasn't really prepared for what that meant because I think what that meant was that the intro and everything and everything kind of running throughout the song had like you know some hip-hop elements and stuff in it as well I didn't realize it was that so I think I'd had these drum beats in a in a folder anyway that were already ready to just load into slate sampler and because I'd read that synopsis I just thought oh maybe he was using these so I think that's why I gave it a go because I just shoved them in and it made a massive difference to the kit like you know let me just take a moment to pause and tell everybody listening this is why we post these notes for you guys and why we take the time to get the guy the guest mixer to write them out because they're not doing it for their health they're doing it so that you guys uh, have a little bit of direction in which to uh, take your mix because you know you could go in a million different directions, but only one of them's right. And uh, and yeah, I I just think it's uh, it's cool that you read it and that somehow you you came to that conclusion. Yeah, well, I just I just added that to the stuff that I'd already learned about. I mean, 
the thing is as well, like with the, with that drum thing, I mean, I listened to a bunch of the the, um, the acoustic kit and stuff. And then the other thing was, because they were saying about sampled drums, I was expecting some kind of MIDI file <laughs> to be in with the <laughs> with the files, but it wasn't. So I went in and I drew the whole drum kit uh, beat from start to finish. So I just drew the whole lot in. I used so the mixture of the drums was actually Drumforge, which is your um, expansion for it. All which right. I I love so my that. expansion. I, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Oh, awesome. I love it. Like I've used that for like Thanks. a solo album that I've got coming out, which I've mixed and a bunch of other stuff, which I've kind of done separate from. Uh, any other bands that I'm doing at the moment, uh, but yeah, I just I just find it like I don't know. Like I've sat there with Superior like for a long time, and I I, I don't really like it. I, I don't know why I can't get a good sound out of it. Like m- most people seem to be able to sort of do really well with it, but I don't really know what it is because I, I anything like that. Like I use the Drum Forge thing, and then I just use Slate to load in the samples, and then what I do is I just copy the MIDI track onto the other one, and then that just triggers like the bass and drum samples. Uh, and then the rest of it, overheads and all all of that. Uh, and then what I did was, um, because also in that synopsis as well, it said about using the uh, the real kit as glue. So that's basically what I did. I, I used, um, I think I used the snare up and I used, because I, I like the idea of the stereo overheads with a mono as well. That sounded, it seemed to work really well with like the uh, the kind of sampled kit as well so you can if i mute off like all the overheads and everything that was just like the real kit underneath it just kind of dies and the glue just totally disappears so uh yeah that was that was cool um what else did i do oh yeah yeah like see it was good for me for because i'd never done singing uh, singing vocals either so um i'd done a bunch of screaming stuff that chris had sent me like for some demos that we'd done and then uh i just you work with chris clancy and you've never done singing vocals no, not mixed. Like, oh, okay. Because he does most of the production for the stuff. That oh, we work yeah, on. that's that's right. So you know, this was kind of you know all part of the learning. Really, is is to sort of like you know work on things with vocals and stuff. Because you know, obviously, the the only thing I do know how to get is a guitar tone. Because obviously, being a guitar player and you know recording guest solos and stuff for people, that's probably the one thing that I am. I already kind of know what to get, but everything else is a bit a bit of a new thing for me so it's only really been this year i've been i've been doing it but yeah the vocal thing i mean i think i only just used like a deesser and gain reduction really and then clip just to get it louder so <laughs> i'm kind of promoting your business i guess by using well all that i stuff. mean you you won fair and square in that mix competition so whatever works it was a surprise, definitely. I picked the top 20, and um, we kind of talked this, about this a little bit the other day when we were doing our Mix Crit episode, but, I mean, the difference between, you know, the first, I would say, top four or five mixes is usually a vastly different than, like, the bottom five or, you know, in the top 20 versus, like, you know, the next 30 or 40 mixes in the in the whole lot. So usually the ones that stand out stand out pretty well above the rest. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I don't envy you guys going through literally every mix just to kind of it's pick out fun. the ones. <laughs> <laughs> we love doing the events and all that stuff, but sitting and listening to like 300 mixes is, it's pretty cumbersome. I mean, even taking the top 20, which is picked out of the top 50, yeah. is very tedious. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys do it every month. I mean, I've, I've run guitar competitions from us. Well, one actually, because we had such a nightmare, we had like four or 500 submissions 
and we like me and uh, Nick, my partner, we had to sit and just watch every, literally every video. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to sound horrible, but you can kind of gauge what it's going to be like in about the first thirty seconds. So. That's exactly what I was about to say. Can't you just like skip most of them after like 10 20 seconds you can do but i don't know i, I do feel bad in a way because you do feel like you have to give people a bit of a chance even though i mean you know it, I, I suppose you know when whenever because you guys mix professionally and do all that kind of thing you must know like when someone sends a mix yeah if, if this is dog shit in the first five seconds the rest of it's going to be absolutely you know which is not to be horrible, but, you know, you, I think his experience tells you that. You know what I mean? Just the balance. Like, if you're doing a radio rock song like Papa Roach, for example, and the guitars come up and they're 2dB louder than the vocals, immediately you're just, like, disqualified. It doesn't matter how good the mix is. Yeah. If you're not mixing a top 40-style mix with a top 40 style, how is that going to compete with all of the other songs in the top 40 that you normally want to compete against? Yeah. So it's yeah. pretty easy and obvious. It's like you can if you're an experienced guitar player, you can watch a bunch of guitar players solo and immediately just watch their fingers and be like, okay, this person's just learning. This person has absolutely no vibrato. This person's bending technique is shit. Mm. You know, this person's pick attack is garbage. You just know right away. Yeah. So sounds like you almost died and due to pain in the hand and almost dying, you somehow learned how to mix. Well, out of it. Uh, what, what it was <laughs> uh, now, now the mix has been a bit of a, now the mix has kind of been a bit of a therapy stroke. I don't know, kind of thing for me to just focus on that, you know, that isn't guitar and what I do like for a living anyway. I mean, you know, I, I've been, I've been well now for about, you know, four months, like signed off well, but yeah, I mean, up until that point, I was literally didn't really go out much. I didn't go anywhere or do anything, even though the internet might have people thinking otherwise. Uh, I mean, I came back from Nam and I was, I was fucked. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for me, it's been a bit of a sort of salvation in a way to have something else to sort of focus my mind on. Um, so that's pretty much what I've been doing. I've just been been doing this and you know doing demos and just mixing things and you know working with stuff for the band you know between me and chris and that he's been you know a lot of massive help to me it kind of annoyed him actually because uh he introduced me to the site he's been in the top 20 a few times but never won oh. it and he just he just said to me <laughs> he was like you just surpassed everything that i've been trying to do for like the last six years in like three or four months so thanks a lot dickhead kind of thing <laughs> but it, you know I didn't do it on purpose it was just you know I think for me I, I just I, I work solely on instinct like I do it with guitar playing I, you know I'm doing it with this although you know I'm learning along the way I still I've got a ton of stuff to sort of like learn and be able to do it consistently you know what I mean so, you know, for me, this is very much the kind of, right, well, I'll just throw myself in at the deep end. I'll mix. It doesn't matter if I don't know what I'm doing or not. I just, does it sound like the record? No. Well, I need, it needs work then. And I'll just keep doing it until it sounds, you know, and I, I used to do that with guitar playing as well. You know, I, I, I mean, I did it for a living for Lick Library for a long time, you know, dissecting players' styles and almost being like a sort of guitar impressionist. So I think it does really train your ear to sort of be able to hear what actually is and not what you think you're hearing kind of thing. I know people have that, you know, thing where you, some people are hearing something and it's totally not what the real thing actually is. And then you're like, yes, you can't hear that. Like, you know, like when you see a cover that someone posts and they're playing things like whole steps off. Yeah. It's like, how, how do you not hear that? Yeah. 
Like, <laughs> yeah. how, like what, like what is going on? Like, how are you not? How, like, I get mad. I'll tell you guys a story. One time, I had this. We'll call him a singer. I say that loosely. <laughs> okay. um, come into my studio, and this is a signed band. I mean, the, it was a small label, but the, the band was definitely signed, and they were on their way towards breaking pretty quickly. The singer was tone deaf, so it's like you have one job in this band, and that's to sing, and you can literally not hit a pitch. I had to have him sing each line a few words at a time about 40 to 50 times each and then auto-tune it into what it was supposed to be while singing to a reference guide. Right. It was incredible. Joel. Some people just don't have it. That's all I'm saying. Joel, great story, bro. Yeah. Yeah, great story. Uh, thanks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was a good story. I'm going to take 10 scoops of pre-workout and come over there and find you. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, you should yeah. come visit, man. You've never visited me here. But uh, so so how long did you spend on this mix? You said just a couple days. But was it like... Well, I, this is um, what happened because I, I was a bit in a bit of a panic, actually, because I, I sent the wrong one initially because I did two versions of it because I, I, I did two different masters because I couldn't decide whether I was going to send one that was a bit louder or uh, slightly brighter than the last one I did. But no, I um, I downloaded the stems on, I think, the 3rd of December and I submitted it early morning the next day. So I probably spent about seven hours on it. So, oh, and you won it in, in seven after. That's great. All right, so that's another thing that we keep telling people, which is don't spend too long on these, like... Yeah, work at them, get it right. But if you're spending weeks on it, you're spending too long. Yeah, yeah, it's not realistic. I mean, in the pro leagues, you get a half a day, maybe a couple days at max to mix a song. But I mean, most of us are so busy when you're playing at that level, you don't have more than a couple hours to do it. So we don't sit there and obsess over the guitar tone for three weeks. We're just like, mm, 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 sounds good next. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, you probably have a bunch of mixed notes and that to work through as well. But, like, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to mix a song that quick. I mean, the thing is, I suppose the only thing is, is if you're working, like, in a in a in an environment where you can save, like, a template and stuff, I suppose once you've done the mix for one song, unless you've got, like, something that's just massively different, I, I should think all those settings work for every song, I think. So, yeah, that makes a huge difference to work with templates. So... You know, this is kind of impressive because, like we were talking about earlier, you kind of you get good at dialing in tones for the instrument that you're good at. Like, and you being a guitar player, I've heard how a lot of guitar players mix, yeah. which is guitar heavy. And this was a more of a <laughs> more more of a pop song that's supposed to be vocal heavy, and you nailed it. And uh, do you find it challenging? to mix something that's vocal heavy or do you find yourself overly biased towards guitars in a no mix? no not at all i mean i actually hate guitar <laughs> i'm just kind of like <laughs> <laughs> isn't that the truth though it's that yes. frequency it's like god you just because I, I like the way those guys mix though i mean like when you listen to anything that kane or kevin's done like you know they seem to have the guitar so present in their mixes but like the thing that really impresses me about the stuff that they do is the drums and for me like when I'm whenever I'm listening to music now if the drums suck then the rest of it can fuck off so I, I just <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <laughs> so for me that's kind of the main thing and that that was like the the main thing I wanted to get right or try and get right in this mix was to just get somewhere close to what he was doing like with with that particular drum sound because it's just it's i don't know it's almost kind of 
tribally aggressive. I don't know, how, you know, I don't know how to describe it really. It's just massive. Because, you, yeah, you, you know, a lot of metal bands and stuff, in order to get the big guitars and stuff, you know, like, you know, those Kill Switch records that I mentioned or whatever, you'll notice that the, the kind of drum kit's sort of popping in the distance in the background and everything's so guitar driven. But actually, I was referencing End of the Heartache the other day to, um, to just make sure that I wasn't getting paranoid about my own solo album mix because, like, when I play it in my car, the, the kind of sort of 2 to 4K range is just ridiculous, especially on my... It's a new car and it's one of those crappy new stereos that doesn't seem to have an amp that's got enough headroom for the speakers that it's driving through. You end up with all that high end and then it's just bouncing off the glass and that. And you think, oh, God, there's just so much whistle frequency going on in this. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to go and literally duck out every horrible high end frequency I can hear in, in like the mastering stage just because I've fucked up my mix. And, but um, I put on End of the Heartache in there and it was twice as bad. And I was thinking, oh, actually, I don't feel so bad anymore. Like, because, you know, that album for me, I suppose, it was because it was like the introduction to a lot of my metal listening, if you like. I love that mix. I mean, even now, like I can sort of hear, well, I don't, you know, maybe it's a bit harsh, but I still love the sound of it. So if you can get away with that being the way it is compared to what I've mixed, and then I'm kind of, I suppose that's just the importance of referencing, you know, rather than just getting too strung out on your own mix and worrying about whether this is right or that's right or, you know, just listen to someone else's that stood the test of time. I mean, I think that was like a Grammy-nominated... Well, it was a Grammy-nominated song on that, so I'm thinking, well, that's obviously fine then to leave that high end in there. Yeah, you know, it's good to use reference mixes like a North Star because you can definitely lose your way when mixing, especially if you've been at it for a while. Reference mix can help show you if you're being crazy or not because... Sometimes we trick ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say, you say about, um, you know, not spending too long on a mix. I wonder, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys are doing like your own music necessarily now or, or whether you just kind of used to do it, don't do it anymore and you just spend all your time mixing other stuff. But I suppose would either of you guys find it easier to just mix someone else's stuff and then just close the door on it rather than if you were doing your own stuff and then be... Hell yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Absolutely. I can't even get a guitar tone on my own stuff. When I, I don't work on my own stuff no. very often, but what I do, <laughs> yeah. I can't even get a damn guitar tone that I like because I'm like, oh, this sounds good. This sounds good. This sounds great. This is good. This is good. I like all of it. I don't know what to pick. Yeah. I'm more like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate that. <laughs> this sucks. I want to kill myself. Done. Right. Like, <laughs> that's, that's more what it's like the complete opposite of joel i've always even from before my band got signed i tried to hire people to mix my stuff and that's why i hired james murphy before my band was signed even though i had a studio and i guess i could have done it myself i wanted someone better than me who was objective you know as objective as you can be to come in and and mix it because it's really fucking hard to mix your own stuff. Yeah. I mean, just on a different, slightly different note, like with my website, I edit all the videos now and do everything. But I don't know. I mean, sometimes I just think, am I being too arrogant Like to think that, you know, because you've got all these other guys, right, that they set out and they do their careers and they get paid for it and that's what they do for a living. You're just some guitar player that sort of like swans about thinking he's cool, right? And then you just sort of, you're like, Am I arrogant enough to think that I could probably do the same job as this guy who does it for a living and actually probably do it as good, if not better? So, bollocks, I'm going to 
learn how to do it myself um i mean we were paying a guy to do academy videos and you know it'd be, it'd be like oh, i wish you'd have told me that my beard was kind of going off 90 degrees to the left or you know my hat was about to fall off the back of my head because i look a total bell end and i'll be just <laughs> i'll be just you know why can't because nobody is going to care Hold about on your a second right what the hell is a ballad? Oh, a right. Penis. Uh, yeah. It's the shape of like the end of your knob. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that word yesterday. See, right. I, I knew that. I knew that one already, but I had never heard swan along. I like that. I was swanning about. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. How does one swan? I don't swanning know. about. <laughs> Just as a guitar player. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the beauty of the modern age. And that's kind of when we decided to start Nail the Mix and do this whole thing that we're doing. We just kind of saw that this is the future of production is guys like you saying, wait a second, I can do this and then learning how to do it. So you're cleverly kind of going, well, this we know this is going that way. People aren't hiring producers anymore, so we'll teach people how to do it themselves. So we still have a career, but then producers around you are kind of dropping like flies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but no, because you'll never be able to replace a top-notch no. or even close to top-notch person. You yeah. know what I mean? Like a genius producer, or even like a really freaking good one yeah. is always going to have a value in a role. Same thing with a mixer or a mastering engineer. I mean, there's some people that just have it and some people that do not. But at the same time, it's just like there are more people that want to make music than ever. So why not help them make it better? Because a lot of guys don't care about, uh, you know, what the guitar is, if it's run through this piece of gear or that. They just like want to get a good guitar tone. They want to write their song and listen to it and enjoy it and not have it sound like absolute shit. 1985, one mic in the room demo. Yeah. And, you know, so why not try to cover the whole spectrum from people that want to do it? professionally and aspire to do so and as well as people that just want to make their and record their own music yeah and we encourage it i think that's awesome that so many people can make music now and make it listenable yeah so it's a killer idea i mean honestly get watching some of these guys that are obviously at the top of their game were you know including you guys and that it's it's just like wow you know i mean i, I love the fact that you're like limiter on everything i think that's brilliant i'll tell you what i didn't really <laughs> i didn't really like know how to sort of tackle bass and i think that's what i did on that papa roach mix i literally just got the got the the left hand side of an l1 and i just pulled it all the way down and then just controlled the volume with the out ceiling and i was just like that's right the there's way. literally no movement in this whatsoever it's brilliant that's probably why i liked your mix so much <laughs> <laughs> you could sense the l1 like running throughout <laughs> it's kind of like the force i guess yeah so hey we're uh we're almost out of time, but we've got some questions from the crowd. Okay. Mind if we ask you a few? No, no. Go ahead. Cool. This one we already asked. Well, you already told us when you joined Nail the Mix, so I'm not going to ask that one. So, okay, Joey Doherty is asking, key to a great solo guitar tone? Question mark. Uh, mid-range and not too much gain. That's about it, really. Pick attack. Yeah, well, you kind of get that out the the, the mid if, if you've got it. I mean, the trouble is if you dial the mid all the way back, you're just going to end up with that kind of wasp in a jar, horrible tone, and you're not going to get any <laughs> any kind of attack. You know what I mean? Whereas, I yeah. mean, like the, normally what I do, like I'll just set up a the bass at like, I don't know, seven or whatever. I almost always turn the presence off. I don't know what it is about presence. It's almost adding in more of that high-end shit that you don't want. So I just use like the, the treble and the mid's kind of over halfway. And then and then good, get a good balance between the mid and the high-end so it's not like really screeching, but it's enough to get 
like the attack. I mean, using the net pickup quite a lot as well. It's it's a good way of being able to gauge how much top end you need because if you're getting just enough pick attack with uh, using the net pickup, when you put it onto the bridge pickup, it should be okay. You won't, you're not going to get too many shrill frequencies. And also, I hear a lot of guitar players using way too much gain, and it just causes a lot of noise. So, I, I you know, just kind of work on your technique a bit so you don't have to use so much gain. I think that's probably a. The one thing that Emil and I always used to do is we would practice apart from the band. We would get together. And we would run through the songs with, like, gain at, like, 20%. Yeah. Like, almost clean. Yeah. And just to keep us honest. Yeah. And uh, it really made us a lot better. It made recording and playing live so much easier. It made me such a better guitar player to have to play like that because everything's exposed and you can't hide behind anything. No, exactly. I mean, especially if you've got a, a picking technique as, as ridiculous as Amos as well, you know? I mean... I don't know. I mean, we were talking about it just before we came on this podcast, but... Um, yeah. We're talking about Emil Wurstler, by the way, people. Yeah, right. I, I've, I've Honestly, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I mean, obviously, there's some great pickers out there, you know, like Petrucci and Gilbert and stuff, but, you know, it's more in a kind of linear fashion, whereas Emil just seems like totally unhindered by direction or that there's another string that he's got to worry about. He just burns through it like it's nothing. I don't um, understand it, dude. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it, really. And it, it, I can't figure out what... I mean, I'm pretty sure he's an economy picker as well. And if he is, like, how does he get that much attack out of using a um, a technique that seemingly doesn't have any power in it? So that's... Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Economy picking is really hard to deliver any sort of attack. I mean, it's such a smooth... Oh, but he's, he's all attack. But the thing is that... He's very, very mapped out about how and when he's going to pick. And so he, like, I mean, he plays a lot of guitar. and But he also not just plays, but he analyzes his picking like crazy. I've never seen anything like it either. But the way that he lays it out across the fretboard and which strings he's going to play, how he's going to pick, when, right. where, why, all that is worked out for it to not just sound great but be totally fluid so every so once you understand what he's doing like once you wrap your brain around it it makes perfect sense and it's actually the easiest way you'll ever play anything right that's that's what's crazy. so it allows him once you get the mechanics of it it's way way easy and uh i mean it's fucking hard but i guess what what i'm trying to say is once you figure it out it's not hard anymore and it's (laughs) actually it's actually designed in a way to where once you wrap your head around it it's so fluid that you can play hard as fuck no i totally understand i mean that's kind of the way i approach it really um picking was one of those things i always struggled with so seemingly now it's like probably my strongest technique because of that obsession with trying to get it right, but you know, to the detriment of say other techniques like sweet picking or whatever. But um, nah, I don't, I don't picking use... is so real. Picking is so much more important than sweet yeah. picking. Well, it is. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Guitar player fight. <laughs> now I'm with you. Our alternate picking is like really a pain in the ass. That was something I really struggled with for many years, and then one day I just sat down. I'm like, fuck this. I'm gonna get good at this, and I practiced 
like speed picking for maybe 12 hours a day. Yeah. And after about three and a half weeks, one day I woke up and I could play like a hundred BPM faster. And I'm like, okay, this yeah. is, this is cool. Like now I get it. I understand what I was doing wrong. Yeah. It's a feeling. Once you memorize the feeling of when you, when you nail it and you do it enough times, you're like, right, that's what it feels like. And weirdly enough, I've noticed with my pick technique actually that the pick doesn't leave the string at all. It's very much a kind of push stroke through the string rather than actually thwacking it. <laughs> if that's even a word. That's a word. But most of the time now, like I, I've discovered that most of my playing naturally starts on an upstroke. So things like doing two note per string picking and that kind of thing is uh, is way more natural for me now because I can't do anything with a down downward motion. Everything's always upstrokes. But it's still alternate picking. It just starts the opposite way around. Um, you know, and I teach that concept as well. And some people, it's, it's really helped them out. And other people, they're, they're still not quite, you know, getting their head around it. But As a matter of fact, one of the things that Emil taught me that made me way better, like right away, was to focus on my upstrokes. That Because your downstrokes come a lot more naturally to you. Um, and But but your upstrokes are 50% of your playing. So if you work on your upstrokes, you're probably going to be 50% better at least. Yeah. I mean... Headfield used to only play with down picks, so I'm just saying, if you guys want to use upstrokes, you can. Yeah. But real men just chug and play down picks. Yeah, the thing is, though, when you wear your guitar that low, you can't reach to do an upstroke anyway. That's like literally <laughs> the, the full stretch. Exactly. So that's it. Why set yourself up for failure? Just down pick metal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that used to be like a legitimate thing in guitar back in the day. Like the amount of downstrokes you had on a riff was like an actual thing of pride. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, ask yourself, what would Hetfield do? I mean, if Clint Eastwood could play guitar, he would only use downstrokes, most definitely. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> if Clint Eastwood could play guitar, I think that he, James Hetfield, and Zach Wilde would have a band. Yeah. Possibly yeah, with Chuck Norris sure. on drums. Probably so. Yes. And there would be no upstrokes. <laughs> no. No. So, so here's a question from Charlie Williamson, which is, when writing a solo, do you tend to improvise it on the spot or do you write the solo beforehand? Um, I probably do about 400 takes of the section that I'm going to play over and improvise it until certain things... Like actually 400 takes? Yeah, it's been known, yeah. I will wow. sit there and just... Because I enjoy playing as well, and if I enjoy the part, I will just keep looping and looping and looping and... And then I'll forget, but then I'll kind of look at how many takes I've done, and it'd be like four hundred odd. But um, yeah, it's ridiculous. But I, that's pretty much how I do it. I don't, I don't listen to a song, get a preconceived idea of idea of what I'm going to do. Um, I'll just have the section, play it a bunch of times. You know, there'll be there'll be kind of licks that are go to things. Like when you improvise, there's always things that you just naturally gravitate towards. You know, like the same old kind of you know patterns and and this that and the other, and then. If I'm kind of bored with that and that doesn't really work, then I'll maybe manoeuvre some of that around to be a bit more, you know, interesting. I mean, for me, I, I, I try and record solos incorporating anything new that I've learned recently. So it forces me, like, I mean, if I'm doing, like, my own stuff or whatever and I have to be able to recreate it, most of the solos and stuff that I write is incorporating things that I've probably only just learned. So it keeps me on my toes in terms of like, right, I've just learnt this lick, I'm going to put it into this solo. Obviously, try and make it as musical as possible. It's not all about the, the lick that I've just put in. But it stops me from playing the same thing all the time because if I did just sit there with a solo, I could, yeah, I could probably just wing it first couple of takes. I could get a solo that I haven't messed up or whatever and we could use that. But then it would, every time I did a solo in uh, over the similar kind of thing, it would be that same solo in just a different 
order or whatever. So um, that's probably the most important thing I have in my mind when doing a, any new solos or whatever is just to try and think about anything new that I have learnt recently or been working on and try and work that in somehow so it keeps it a, a little bit fresher than you know than it normally would be. Makes sense. Uh, here's one from uh, Paul Forfit, which is, what's your guitar warm-up routine? Do you spend a lot of time warming up or do you just go for it and mixing how do you not mix the guitar louder than all the other instruments wink wink <laughs> um well i mean you know we, we talked about that like um with like the drums and stuff and you know because actually the song that i mixed and for for the website was you know it's a great vocal i mean like it's a really good song i mean i'm not surprised it's number one you know it's such a memorable kind of song i mean i've always been a fan of papa roach anyway since the infest days so you know, they. I don't think they've really done any wrong in my eyes, kind of as 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 far as writing and putting stuff together. So, it was quite cool actually to work on, on uh, on the vocals for this song as well, because there were so many of them. Like, so yeah, the, the guitar was the probably least interesting thing about it, to be quite honest with you. So I suppose everything else just sort of took precedent over that, really. Real quick, let me just say, Joel has to go, but we should keep going because we've got more questions. Well, does he need another shit? <laughs> yeah, I got to go pick up my car and uh, all that fun stuff. So fuck okay. you, Joel. Andy, thanks. That was awesome. You're hilarious. It was a very good time. Oh, okay, cheers, but we're man. gonna keep nice going to you anyway. Fuck you, Joel. <laughs> all right, guys. Cheers. All right. <laughs> all right. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, well, we didn't need him anyways. Sorry, uh, yeah, there was a, that was a two-part question, so I think I skipped Yeah, but... well, he was asking about your warm-up routine. Oh, um, no, I don't really have one, you know. I'd probably just sit and play the same kind of lick that just comes to my mind, you know, when I get up. Because normally when I get up and there's a guitar near or whatever, I'll just to kind of wake myself up, I'll sit and just, you know, play and do a bunch of stuff, but... Um, I haven't really played guitar that that much this year, to be honest. Not not really for pleasure. It's it's more been for like if I've needed to do videos for my website or you know do anything. So I haven't really worried about whether or not I'm gonna lose some kind of dexterity or or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to this new pick that I've got with uh, Dunlop. It's a new signature pick that me and Chris Johnson have been working on. And it's done now, but uh, there's something about this pick that means that I don't have to warm up. I don't know what it is, but it just cuts through the string, and I just feel so comfortable. <laughs> well, not if, that, if that's that. not a, if that's not a good sales pitch for the pick, like I I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to warm up with this pick. It's just instant awesomeness right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what is this? So, all right, you you got to tell me a little more about I've piqued your interest now, haven't I, right? Um, yeah. Maybe I'll take a photo and send it to you and you can post it up on the uh, on the thing. But um, Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, an old, it's not like a, a new pick that Dunlop have come up with. It was a pick, actually, that I was using a lot um, sort of six or seven years ago playing with Sacred and stuff when I first joined. And it's just a jazz tone uh, 208 but the thing is with that the material that they made it out of it's like polycarbonate so it's a little bit um spiky like in the high end so i've been i've been on this kind of pick quest for like you know ages you know people uh, people that have come to see me or or you know clinics and gigs and stuff you know whenever we've got onto the subject of picks it's always been a well so what pick are you using this week <laughs> So, you know, it's like a totally different thing. Um, but I've gone, I decided I was going to go back to those polycarbonate ones because I thought, I know I stuck with those for a good couple of years at least. 
That was the, the longest serving pick I've ever had. There must have been something about it that was good. Uh, and then when I started playing with them again, it reminded me actually it was the material that kind of put me off of it. So we've been through about three different signature picks with Dunlop at this point. I think Chris is kind of losing his patience with me going, look, if we do another pick, this has got to be the one because we're not doing another run of 5,000 <laughs> for you to just, I don't know, just lose down the back of the sofa or whatever. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I was like, right, okay, I've been using Altex for a while now. Can we try and do that pick, but with Altex? And he was like, yeah, you know, I'll have a word to um, Dunlop guys and see what they say. So he came back with some good news and said, look, we're going we're gonna to do you a run. And uh, actually, no, before that, he had some three mil prime tone ones, which are kind of the same shape. And they were sitting around the office and he went, do you know what? We made these a while ago. Nobody's using them. I mean, these were three mil picks, mine are two mil. And, and he went, look, I'll, we'll just send we'll just send them to you and see how, you, see how you get on. Nobody's using them. No one gives a fuck about these picks. They've been collecting dust for ages. Anyway, he sends them to me. And of course, because it's a pick that everybody else hates, I instantly fall in love with it. And I'm like, right, this is definitely a step in the right direction. And that was made out of Altex. But I found it was a little bit too thick and I didn't like the pick grip that it had on it because there's a it's a bit like a big stubby in the middle where they've dipped it and put some carving into the pick and I don't really like that. So um so yeah he he agreed to do the Altex version of the 208 and he sent them to me and I've I've been using them since the beginning of this year and I probably won't ever use anything ever again and I, I can say that hand on heart these things have just kind of changed my life in terms of uh consistency so you got it here first you don't need to warm up if you use these picks no but I'll uh I'll send you a picture so you can everyone can see you know what they are <laughs> yeah please do um so here's a question from Robin Leishan which are what are your go-to pickups well um the ones I've got in my guitars right now are the uh they're the EMG Metalworks uh, 5766, and they're Actives. Um, they've been pretty much, when ESP said they wanted to do like a signature guitar with me, um, we were initially just going to put like the 85 in the bridge and 60 in the neck, because that's what I was using for like a long time. And while I was over at Jam Play uh, filming some stuff for them, I had a I had a couple of days where I left Cleveland to go to San Francisco to do some filming for EMG. And uh, when I was there, because um, Chris, who now works for Dunlop, was working for EMG at the time. And he, he said to me, he said, look, we got some new pickups. It's, you know, nobody is using them apart from the only other guy that's using them is uh, Richie Faulkner from Judas Priest. And I was like, right, OK, because he, he came up with this idea that he wanted something that was a little bit hotter, but more kind of retro looking you know, with the metal casing and stuff. So they came up with these uh, 5766, which actually I think, if my memory serves me correctly, was actually a mistake by EMG because they wired one of the pickups wrong and sent them to Richie Faulkner. And then he rang them up and said, what have you done with this pickup? And they went, oh, right. Because uh, he, he, I don't know, somehow he knew like what, the, what it was supposed to be. And then he realised it wasn't what it was supposed to be. It was something else. And then they had a bit of a revelation. They were like, oh, right, yeah, uh, it's not supposed to be like that, but if it sounds great, then we'll leave it. So, Happy accident. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think it's got something to do with the pole pieces or, or something. I, I don't know. You'd have to speak to Rob Turner to find out the exact details. I'm probably remembering it wrong, but it, I know there was something wrong with it that got left. So, um, 
Anyway, they had like another set and Chris just gave me them. He said, look, you know, put them in your guitars, you know, see what you think. Because at this point, we'd already come up with the design for the signature guitar and it was going to be all black with black pickups and everything. But these pickups he gave me were chrome. And I put them in the guitar when I got back to Cleveland. Instantly, when I looked at the guitar, before I even played the thing, right, to hear what the pickups sounded like, I was like, well, this has just completed the look of the guitar because the chrome pickups with the matte black just looked amazing to me. And I was kind of thinking, well, I hope the pickups play as good as they sound. And anyway, I plugged them in and stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know, right off the bat, it just had a real liveliness, like almost like there's like a preamp fitted in like the volume control or something where you hit it and you get a bit of extra gain. Because I've noticed now, going back to the setup that I used before, I, I feel like I'm getting a lot less out of the pickups than than using these ones they're pretty lively but they're it's a nice lively it's not um you know it's not uncontrollable you just feel like you can play anything kind of thing so uh there you go you don't have to warm up if you use my picks and if you use those pickups, pickups. you can play anything <laughs> yeah so there you go perfect okay so um andrew howington's asking a lot of shredders just do technical wankery and not really musical melodic stuff but andy can play really really long lines of straight shred and have it maintain a sense of melody what is his mindset while writing guitar solos to achieve such great results by the way just bought your hybrid picking lesson pack super stoked to get started sweet oh thanks for buying that yeah well just exactly what he said you know the the melodic thing is always in my mind there's there's kind of ways i mean i suppose this is probably bringing back to what we were talking about earlier about you know certain techniques being your strengths and others being weaknesses i've always found techniques like sweet picking to be very kind of unusable for that very reason you know like unless you're kind of jeff loomis or jason becker or, or like you know the guys that actually really do something with that technique that's just just ridiculous like i don't know or say Frank Gambale, for example, I don't want to leave him out because he's kind of the guy that started it all. But yeah, the, the, but a lot of that kind of monotonous up and down arpeggio thing, just, it never really sort of sat well with me. But I realised from an a, a early kind of time in my career of playing guitar that arpeggios were definitely a way of being able to cover a lot of the neck um, very sort of like quickly. So... I suppose when Paul Gilbert came along and with his concept of like string skipping and stuff like that, it was really great because you can sequence the notes in such a way that actually make the lines and, and arpeggios sound way more melodic. And that was kind of a good start for me, really, was, was experimenting with how many different ways that I could use that technique in order to, you know, get melodic sounding passages and stuff like that. Also, I suppose it depends on influences as well, you know, because I, I, I naturally gravitate towards guys that are very technical but very melodic, you know, guys like Tony McAlpine, John Petrucci, Vinnie Moore, you know. I mean, there's there's hundreds mm -hmm. of guys, but, but they always manage to maintain a sense of melody with the way that they played, and I suppose that's just sort of stuck with me, really. And, you know, plus the fact, with a lot of the earlier demos that I'd done with, like, songs and stuff, because I'd got strayed up strayed from the path a little bit and really did just have a time where i was just concentrating on on technique and nothing else it was pointed out to me you know by non-music people that they're like yeah you know it just sounds it sounds like you know you really know what you're doing but i don't know what you're doing and to me that just makes me not want to listen to it so i guess it's kind of 
it's that really. It's being able to play music to people that aren't necessarily guitar players and still get what you're trying to do. And using using that as a bit of a rule of thumb has, has helped a lot as well in terms of being able to write music that can speak to people other than guitar players, you know what I mean? Speak to actual music listeners. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, just. I mean, I don't want to say the average person because that makes it seem that I'm somehow better than they are because I'm playing the music and they're just listening to it. But yeah, you know, the the average listener, I suppose. I mean, if you think about the percentage of the population, there's probably more people that don't play an instrument than people that do. So Yeah, for sure. All right, here's one from Oleg Novakovsky which is, did you have any career plan or strategy when you were beginning to emerge as a guitar player? I'm asking that because I've been playing hundreds of local gigs with an amazing band in the past few years, but I'm struggling to get to the next level in my career. Okay. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know how long we've got, but it's kind of a weird situation for me. Cause Go for it. <laughs> I mean, I was playing in... I was playing, you know, obviously playing in bands and stuff from college, and then those same guys we stayed in touch, and we we had cover bands and stuff while we were doing day jobs. Um, I mean, my last day job was sitting doing insurance. You know, people ring up and go, oh, "I've crashed my car," and I got to tell them, you know, "Sorry, you're fucked," or "Yeah, we can sort it out," kind <laughs> of thing. Um, but obviously, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And you know, I I, I guess in my own mind and other people saying to me like oh you know you really should be doing this for a living or you know why are you just doing that and doing pub gigs or whatever and I suppose it, it, it never really occurred to me to like properly go for a music in you know a career in music I mean I suppose I just wanted to be able to do something because guitar for me wasn't really oh, I want to I want to grow up and be a rock star it was like because I was pretty useless at school and stuff like that it was more a case of something that I understood from a young age and I did it as a social acceptance kind of thing you know like once I kind of started to be able to play a little bit you know I noticed that kids that maybe thought I was probably a bit of a loser before were starting to think oh yeah actually you know he's pretty good at that he's pretty cool I can't do that and he can do something that I can't do so I don't know maybe that makes him all right kind of thing so there's that and then I don't know, really, and then just sort of like doing gigs and stuff like that. But I suppose the more and more people said, oh, you know, maybe you should sort of like, you know, think about doing it professionally, that's when you start to kind of think, well, how would I go about doing that? I've got no contacts, no idea. I don't know what I'm going to do. All, I, all I've done is just look at these players that are at the other side of the Atlantic that seem to be like massive players, and I'm just thinking, well, what am I going to contribute to that? If you, you know. So anyway... I was working one day and I got like a guitar magazine and I saw that there was like a guitar competition being advertised. Uh, it's called Guitar Hero, I think. And it was like a national thing, you know, they were taking auditions and stuff, people come down and that. The whole event was sponsored by uh, Ernie Ball. And uh, I mean, I, I met the guys in Ernie Ball much earlier because uh, when I went to GIT in London after college, I, I was... I, I got to meet Vinnie Moore and that because he came in and did a masterclass and then I got up on stage and, and uh, you know, we jammed and stuff and then sort of started chatting and, and then I got to meet the guy that was part of Ernie Ball back then. So I was kind of like, well, I know these guys run pretty good competitions because that was a competition thing as well. So I thought, no, fuck it, I'll, I'll, I'll enter. So this is just normal for you doing these competitions? No, not really. I, it was... Um, 
he came into GIT to do a clinic and then it was like five guys get up on stage and jam with Vinny. Then, oh, okay. then uh, the guy at Ernie Ball picked me as the like, winner and then I went off to do another jam, and uh, which was at one of the national guitar shows in Birmingham. I mean, I didn't win or whatever, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I kind of messed it up because I didn't really understand what we had to do. So I was one of the only guys that, <laughs> that didn't read the sort of small print I suppose maybe that's why I read everything now is because, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because, like, I never used to, and then things go wrong. So uh, always read the small print. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I, I entered it, and, you know, I went through a bunch of heats and stuff, and and then they called me back and said, oh, you know, come back and, and do it. You know, you're through to the next bit, and then I'd go and do it, and then I'd wait, and then they called me back and go, yeah, you're back, you know. And then eventually it got to the live show, and they're like, yeah, we want to come, we want to bring you back as, like, one of the finalists. And I think there was, like, five of us. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the the competition was actually being judged by uh, a guy called Giz Butt, who he played guitar in a prodigy for a, a while and since has you know has become a sort of friend if you like and then uh, there was Jamie Humphreys as well who is one of the guys who um you know played he does all of the demos for like Ernie Ball and stuff like that uh, he's played um with like you know he plays with Brian May I think at the moment doing like the queen queen thing or something and then there was Blaze Bailey who was the old uh, well the other maiden singer I suppose or one of them uh, so it was a pretty good judging panel, you know, from people that were already in the industry and stuff. So, you know, got up, played my own original song from start to finish, you know, pretty good reception, got down. Anyway, long story short, they call out all the winners and then my name wasn't called. And I was like, all oh, right, I've obviously fucked this up. You know, I was kind of getting ready to get my coat and leave, you know. So at this point, they announced that there's an overall winner of like the whole thing. So I thought, well, you know, I better stay, stick around for this, you know. And anyway, they called out my name, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. So I ended up, you know, I won a guitar and an amp and stuff. And Nice. And then, yeah, it was through that that, I, you know, like I mentioned Jamie. Uh, but he actually worked for um, this company called Lick Library. Um, and, you know, they I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's like a company where it does have, all yeah. this instructional stuff, um, you know, everything that you can ever hope to learn or want to learn or think of. Um, so, you know... We kept in touch and stuff. Um, hadn't heard from him for a while, and I'd, at this point, I'd quit my job. I was just teaching because I didn't want to do that job anymore, anyway. Regardless of of how my career was panning out or not panning out at that time, so I used to just go down to the local music shop every day and annoy my friend Greg because I'd go in there and play all the guitars and never buy anything. <laughs> so uh, I got a phone call um, from Jamie, and he sort of said, "Oh, you know." I've uh, I've got a potential offer for you. Um, I don't know if you'll be interested, but uh, he passed me over to the guy who runs Lit Library, um, Kim. His name is, and um, and yeah, we had a chat and stuff, and and you know that went pretty cool. And then he, he booked me, and he said, look, you know, do you want to come in and do a screen test and stuff? And you know, I've heard some really good things about you, and you know, we're looking for somebody to do, you know, more of the kind of the shred thing because they hadn't really. You know, they had guys like Guthrie Govan and Dave Kilminster, but because they were fairly busy, I think, doing other things, they they probably wanted somebody that was a bit more um, readily available to just kind of come in regularly and do stuff, um, you know, that weren't out on tour or whatever. And at this point, I wasn't doing anything. I was in a cover band and teaching, you know, local kids guitar. So, so yeah, I went in. The first lesson I did was uh, Get the Funk Out by Extreme. And, um, and, yeah, you know, I did that, a bunch of kind of lessons and stuff. 
and uh, I sort of did it. They edited it. You know, it, it all looked great. You know, the playing, they were really happy with it and stuff. And then he called me up and said, yeah, you know, do you want the gig then? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, okay, sweet. So, you know, the YouTube thing for them was just sort of taking off and that. And I think I was fortunate at the time to, to get in at that point and, and do videos that did do quite well. You know, they became fairly popular and... You know, people like my stuff and, you know, there was kind of requests coming in for like, oh, you know, can you do this, that and the other. And then I started doing, you know, sort of Pantera, Megadeth and all that kind of stuff, which was sort of furthering my sort of metal knowledge because I was learning as I was going kind of thing. But yeah. One know. thing led to another and here you are. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, that I did that for a number of years and then I was sort of doing the guitar shows and stuff. And then I started getting offers from like other other websites and things, you know, oh, do you want to come and do this? And, you know, sometimes sometimes it was a bit of an, uh, a kind of conflict of interest crept in a little bit. So, you know, it was a bit of a minefield, I suppose, when they'd obviously created a bit of a monster with what I was doing that other people were keen to get me in to to do stuff because maybe they liked my approach or you know they liked the way I played and stuff and and then it was a bit of a platform for me to um to start putting some instrumental stuff out there uh but that was really networking through forums and and stuff as most notably the John Petrucci forum which at the time was kind of a hub of you know, bubbling players, um, you know, Rick Graham, Tom Quayle, uh, I think you, uh, guys like Travis Montgomery and and then you had like Misha uh, Mansour in there as well. It was just, he was just posting up demos of like his stuff under Bulb. I mean, who would have known that it would have ended up being the fucking massive yeah. band that's periphery now, but it was kind of, it's kind of cool seeing it sort of grow from that to where it is now, you know what I mean? Both the John Petrucci Forum and the Andy Sneap Forum. yeah. I suppose, well, I suppose if you were more of a, you know, a recording guy, I mean, I didn't even know who Andy Sneap was at that time. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the the forums were, Vi was another good forum as well. So, yeah, I think there was just this time where forums seemed to be an important place to kind of network and put your name out there and gauge whether people liked what you were doing or not. Um, And then... I sent a bunch of demos out to some labels. One got back to me, which is a New York label called Grooveyard Records, and they put out my second album, um, which I did myself horribly, but they signed off on the mix and they went, yeah, it's fine, you know, we've heard worse. I was like, okay. So (laughs) (laughs) that's... That's uh, encouraging. Yeah, but, you know, it kind of did all right. You know, there's some songs on that that people still ask me to play and, and teach and stuff and... Yeah, and then it just it grows from there, really. But it wasn't really until I hit my 30s, well, you know, I had a long-term relationship and that kind of broke up and then I kind of, you know, just went off the rails a little bit. I started kind of thinking, right, fuck this, you know, I'm going to move in with my mate, literally just start my life again. And then I spent probably from about 30 to 34 just playing all over the world, doing clinic tours, you know, going to NAMM, networking meeting people i mean i mean some of the scenarios where i've met people like um you know me and padge from bullet for my valentine are good friends now but we met at um frankfurt and we were both just totally off our faces on jägermeister and we just kind of just hit it off you know what i mean and we stayed in touch ever since um i met mark tremonti at a steel panther concert because i was walking backwards through a cloud uh, for a cloud um for a crowd drunk because I dropped through a cloud. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, but yeah, I dropped my wallet 
and I was looking for it, but I was kind of walking backwards. I was, I was looking for it. Anyway, I was kind of, I, I sort of bumped into a few people and there was this one guy I bumped into and I sort of, you know, quite hard and that. Uh, and I just sort of turned around and went, oh, yeah, sorry, mate. And he was like, fucking hell, it's Mark Tremonti. <laughs> and he knew me from the sort of Lick Library stuff. So we just sort of stood there chatting in Disney World, like drunk. I think because a lot of people don't know that he's a uh, sick guitar player yeah, and totally. like a never-ending guitar student. Yeah, he loves it, honestly. I mean, I saw him the other week just because he's like, you know, whenever he's in town or, or he's kind of near to where I live, he's like, oh, you know, you're going to have to come out and we're gonna sit down and trade some more licks and stuff. So, it's you know, it's pretty cool that he's just totally not this guy that you would expect, you know, who's been in like one of the biggest bands throughout the 90s and and all the stuff he's done and that. He's still kind of a geek for the guitar thing. And it's great because you just, you know, you get something out of it, obviously, because, you you know, you learn a ton from him for, like, you know, some of the styles that he's got, especially with his finger style and stuff. So, you know, the licks that you're trading aren't necessarily the same kind of thing. But, yeah, you know, it, it's just great when, when, you, when you network and you, you just kind of put yourself out there, I think. You'd be surprised at who you can meet and the kind of relationships you can forge just through being normal and having a love of a mutual thing, you know. You know, I think it's interesting that you say how this networking stuff that you've done is just basically hanging out. We've had a lot of guests talk about how really the uh, the word networking is thrown around a lot, but in all reality it just comes down to being someone that people like to hang out with yeah exactly like i mean you haven't even got to be the greatest player or like no definitely not you know you've just got to be i mean obviously you know you've got to be sort of good or whatever and but i think yeah more importantly you just kind of these guys i mean they don't want to work with people that are constantly in awe of where they are or like I've noticed that as well. Like, I mean, just as it's as uncomfortable for you meeting one of your heroes, it's just as uncomfortable for them knowing that there's this weird barrier of, like, no conversation because somebody's just totally, like, frozen because they don't know what to say. You know, so if you can kind of totally diffuse that straight away, it makes the relationship building a lot easier between the people because then you can just have a normal conversation and then you can actually get to know the person rather than the idea that it's somebody you know that shit doesn't even matter once you get to know the person no exactly exactly you kind of after a while you sort of forget really yeah and also i think another thing that is really important that's served me well with networking is this might seem counterintuitive but you approach it with no goal in mind yeah other than hanging out yeah definitely. so the goal is to hang out and have a good time and if something comes of it great yeah and if not great too i almost kind of purposefully don't ask for i mean it depends how well you know somebody or whatever but like i mean even even if you've had that initial thing and you've traded contact details and stuff like that like Knowing that they're going to be in town and they've got a gig, it's almost like, oh, God, I don't want to be the guy to be asking them if I can come and, and stuff like that. You know, normally, I mean, I've been fairly fortunate that, you know, people, because you've kind of forged, forged a relationship in that and they know they're going to be near you, they normally offer and go, oh, look, you know, I'm going to be around, do you want to come down and, and stuff like that. But, yeah, like you say, somehow having that relationship that's new and then using it 
to purely get passes and or to purely go, oh well, this guy's my friend now, and and you know I can get us all in, and or you know yeah, don't worry about it, I'll sort it all out, or you know, and then or you start bombarding them with like links to your band, or you start sending them your music or, and going, oh, what do you think of this, and you know, because it's like. I don't know, that is the quickest way to ruin any kind of fledgling relationship with a potential contact that, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't be useful in the future, but I want to establish enough of a relationship with somebody whereas that's not weird, you know, and and, and almost they offer and go, look, man, you really should do something with this music. Maybe I can have a word with somebody and see what's going on, you know what I mean? But, you know, that's not to say that you, you don't, mention that you're doing something but you don't directly go oh look i'm doing this band you're you know you've got a big label behind you and that do you think you could put it under somebody's nose kind of thing it's very weird it's a delicate situation only if it's relevant to the conversation do you bring it up yeah totally yeah but i don't know i mean yeah like like you say i mean these friendships and stuff like that they're they're purely because you know we've met on mutual terms and you know you just get on there's some people that you meet that you don't get on with but you know that's 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 fine too that's fine yeah exactly you don't you don't have to get on with everybody i mean you know some people you have to know them in order to progress so you have enough of a relationship with them in order to do business because you know let's face it like record companies you know people that mix master produce people that are in bands singers guitar players you know they're all doing the same thing that you are so it's like if you want to work with a singer the sole purpose of them being a singer is so they can sing over songs so if you can write songs that facilitate that then you're going to have some kind of symbiotic relationship that will work it's not like oh i can't possibly work with this person because they're such and such it's like well all of these guys uh, are doing what they do because it's the same thing as what you do they've just got a bit further maybe but it's like record labels you know they want bands to promote it's not like they're sitting there going oh we don't need bands to promote because like what's the fucking point of a record label do you know what I mean? So absolutely. So yeah, it, 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 everything works both ways. It's not like you know somebody needs you more than you need them kind of thing. It normally ends up being, well, you're a band. We promote bands. Let's do that. I mean, it's a shame that some people get fucked over along the way, but you know that's due to maybe lack of experience or just dealing with genuinely not very nice people within the industry, and that's going to happen. But I think the industry does get a bad rap, though, honestly. Like, there's so many people and posts I see now about, oh, there's no money in it anymore, there's not this, there's not... And I'm thinking, well, fucking hell, someone's making money. Uh, I I beg to differ. I think there's plenty of money in it. Yeah. And you just... Uh, if you're doing the things that made money in 2005 or, or 1995, you might think that there's no money. You need to figure out what makes money in 2016 yeah, and 17. exactly. The, the industry's... You know, I mean, the thing is now, I suppose it's different is like record companies were giving out ridiculous advances of which was borrowed money anyway. It was never initially the artists unless they kind of took that money and then made it into millions and millions of their own money. I suppose that's why a lot of, say, artists from the 80s and stuff, they were living on borrowed money from record labels. And then either when their deal kind of got pulled or the label went bust or whatever, then all the stuff had to go back kind of thing. But, you know, it's the same now, but people aren't, spending stupid amounts of money on on bands anymore and and this kind of you know because there's there's no need for it like i mean people can still make money i mean you look at bands like i don't know 
Five Finger Death Punch, for example, like, I mean, they're an arena band, but they weren't big, like, back when Metallica were big or Slayer were big or, you know, they're still a band that are relatively young and have made it in the last sort of decade. So it can't be that bad if bands like that are out there doing it for whatever reason, whether, you know, love or hate their music or or the way they... But there's still a market for it. And they are doing very well for yeah, themselves. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, like Papa Roach have been around a lot longer and they've, they've probably had to, you know, stay and fight through changes in the industry. But fucking hell, they're still here. You know, that is a perfect example of a band that has been malleable enough to change with the times and still be relevant you know what i mean it's possible you've just got to not stay within the time period that you believed was better i think yeah uh, the time period in which you were christened basically yeah exactly so you know i mean it is hard for new bands i mean I, i'm suffering with it for myself and but it but there's it's not like i don't know i mean we're, we're, we're just having to do things a little bit differently but it's not it's not holding us back at, at all. Like, I think we're just a lot more people are taking it upon themselves to do stuff in house now. You know, like getting better at mixing and stuff like that. Which is, you know, it obviously gives relevance to to what you guys are doing now. The mix, you know, it totally gives people the upper hand on how to how to do that and and save money and learn properly as well. You know, it's it's like a fun way of doing something that would normally be boring, like you know, doing a degree or, or working on styles of music that you don't particularly like, but you have to learn the techniques through doing that anyway, just to so you can get a piece of paper at the end of it. I think or the, super expensive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's really affordable. Like, I think, you know, this is the thing. I mean, it's a business model that has changed. You know, you've put it out there and gone, yeah, you know, this is a way to make money within the industry, even though you guys have produced, you know, some great records and that it's like yeah but we can still do this and give people knowledge and still have a career in the industry like i'm guessing none of you work at a car wash or whatever <laughs> <laughs> no no not exactly yeah exactly do you know what i mean so it's possible that's the thing there's ho always hope dude there's always hope you and it's always possible you just have to uh you just have to see the future i guess and see the I see the solutions to problems that people don't even know they have yet. Yeah. And I know that that sounds esoteric, but it's not. You just, you have to try. And um, part of it comes from knowing your audience and knowing what, what they want and what they're not getting enough of and what they, what they would be really excited over and giving it to them in a way that makes their lives better. Like, you have to try. You're not just going to figure it out. If you think that you're going to just put out records and make money off of records, you know, or do things the way they've always been done, you might not fare so well. But if you, if you figure out a way how to make people happy now, you, you can probably do okay with some hard work. Yeah. And, you know, I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head there. Like everything boils down to how hard you're willing to work at something. Yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of the, to me, that's kind of assumed with successful people is like, you just assume that they bust ass. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, I mean, if you look at my day to day life, I mean, you probably think, well, it, it does fuck all really, but I don't. Cause when I do work, I work like super long hours and, you know, like hours and hours spending video editing and making sure things look cool and, you know, and, and 
planning releases and writing music and, and constantly, you know, everything I do is kind of geared towards my art in some form or another. But uh, it's not like a day job, you know, but it is, you know, it is hard work. But I, that's the thing that I think the technology, even though it kind of improves workflow and things like that, it's still never going to replace the, the work that you have to put in initially to just improve yourself, either as a musician or whatever it is that you do, I think that's always going to be something that, you know, separates people that are successful compared to people that aren't. Well, the technology is just an infrastructure. I mean, it doesn't, it's neutral, in my opinion. It doesn't, it exists to help you do your thing, but you still have to do your thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I suppose I could, because of YouTube and stuff like that, like, I could argue maybe that if it wasn't for the internet, I wouldn't have a career, but I don't know if that's true either. Cause I think the same process will have played out just very differently, but ultimately well, with have, a different medium. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, the same drive and the same direction would have, would have occurred. I mean, you know, my initial part of the career and getting out of my work into doing what I was doing anyway, was nothing to do with the internet. It was still very much a hard hard sale business you know in terms of selling dvds and uh and how i found about the competition was through a magazine you know so the internet wasn't involved at all so those things even if somebody unplugged the internet now would still exist well that's uh that's kind of how i feel about it as well is um before the internet was a thing i was i still had the same mindset i was wanted to do something bigger i didn't want to be tied down to one career i wanted to do something that helped people and uh i had the same types of ideas and the same drive for sure it's just you know you you work in the world you live in so yeah right now you had youtube so great uh 20 years from now guitar players will probably have something different and that's fine too yeah i mean i have heard on the grapevine actually that even um even CD printing companies and stuff like that are actually advising in the next four years about printing CDs or even any form of physical medium in which you can own music because they're going, it's lit, everything's going to go streaming, like, which is kind of interesting. In about the next four years, hard versions of any kind of music will just be phased out completely. So that's interesting. Like, I mean, you, I mean, it's kind of going that way anyway. But doesn't bother me. No, I mean, the only thing I am thinking though is, is it going to be more geared up towards supporting the artist if that is the case? Because, I mean, I know companies like Spotify and the like are going to have to probably rethink their uh, their royalty scheme if if anybody's going to have a hope in hell of, you know, having a, a sustainable income from streaming because then I think streaming in a way will will get rid of illegally downloading and illegally owning stuff so actually that should set the kind of baseline for well back to where it used to be but it would just be streaming and and uh, not but I, I don't know because then some illegal streaming sites will probably pop up where people can hear stuff for free and they don't pay for it or you know so I think artists need to just realize that their music is a commercial for whatever else they're doing yeah I mean yeah you're absolutely right actually I mean it kind of has got that way now because like I mean I know guys in bands and stuff and and yeah uh, it's touring I mean, that's why bands yeah. are going out for so long now, um, you know, as opposed to they make so much money off the record and do a six-month tour and then that would be the cycle for the album. That's kind of not the case anymore. It's actually gone back 
towards where, you know, like, say, like, bands like Bon Jovi and that used to do, like, two and a half year touring cycles of an album, like, non-stop. You just think, fucking hell. I mean, the, it, the thing is that we can say it'll go this way or that way, but I'm... I kind of assume the worst, and I also assume that I have no power over it. Mm. So I assume that the idea of, unless you write like a number one hit or something like that, the idea of making money off of plays of your music is kind of out the window. Unless, though YouTube is pretty cool about that. I think overall as a business model, like I want to get into writing music and I'm going to, make a living through streaming income. I just think that if anyone thinks that they need to rethink things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because there's no, because we can't control, like we can't control what they do. We can't control where any of this goes. We're just along for the ride. So my experience tells me that musicians need to be smart about using their own music as a platform to launch a bunch of other things. And it's not just touring. It can be the Andy James Guitar Academy. It can be the clothing brand that, what's his name from Five Finger, that Zoltan from Five Finger yeah. has. It can be any number of things. It can be Nail the Mix. It can be uh, Jam Play or or whatever. It, you know, Band Happy, Once Upon a Time. Mm. Whatever, whatever it is, it can be a crazy merch line. You know, we can't expect that things that were valuable to the consuming public 20 years ago are going to still be valuable. I think songs, while we all love songs, they don't hold the same value to no. the market. No, and that's right. probably not going to, it's probably not going to change. I mean, it will change, but it's not going to go back to how it was because nothing, nothing ever goes back. No. It's kind of like you don't, things aren't going to become less chaotic. No. I suppose it's like having been exposed to like heavy drum sampling for the last 10 years. It'd be like going back and listening to totally dry kits in mixes again, which I don't think is ever going to happen. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It happens. Like, uh, But um, yeah, I mean, unless anybody really figures out how to illegally download a T-shirt or a hoodie, I think you're pretty safe with merch for now. You know, unless they 3D print clothes or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with uh, what we do, they can't they can't download our community. No, no. And that's why we put a lot of a lot of our time into making sure that our online community is incredible. It's great. Yeah, I mean, I've I've posted up a couple of things like, but already, you know, you people just get on it straight away, and you're informed within minutes about something that you would probably not get an answer from like I had a question about Cubase or something I put it up and because I couldn't find anything to do with their website or anything like that maybe I was looking in the wrong place and then you got to wait 48 hours for someone from support to maybe or may not get back to you like so stuff like that's brilliant I think being able to just talk to a community that that has seemingly infinite knowledge of you know how to do this that and the other especially you know with what you guys do like well and that's a big part of how we built this um because we figured that you can try and steal our content though we hope you don't but you know someone will but you can't steal our community you just can't it's impossible uh, and our community is a big part of why our stuff is worth it. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many guys that have done mixes for like the the stuff saying that they've actually mixed the original song and done it as a promotion for their mixing stuff. I wonder if that's happened. Very, yet. very few. Yeah. 
very, most guys are really respectful about it. We've caught a couple on YouTube, and we've had them take their stuff down. Though some of our tracks, if you go uh, November 2015 through April 2015, those are, you can use them for self-promotion. You can use up to 45 seconds of any one of those for self-promotion. It's just after that we started to get a bunch of label bands and it's hard enough to get the labels and the bands to agree. Right. I mean, everyone's been cool, but still, like, we don't want to push it and we do have to get this legally signed and, yeah, those are the rules. But so far, literally, we've only found like two or three people over like the course of six months. That's pretty cool, actually. Like, I mean, you know, you're always going to get the odd one, aren't you? But yeah, yeah. that's awesome. It was interesting as well, actually, because I listened to um, just kind of going back to now the mix again. I was listening to that podcast with that you did with uh, Logan Madder, just listening to you know about the Gojira thing because I thought, oh, you know, kind of check it out. And then you guys started talking about a guy called George Valet, which was interesting. Oh yeah, I love George. Yeah, it's interesting because. Uh, my band, Wearing Scars, uh, we're touring with Devil You Know um, next January. Oh, yeah. And uh, he looks after them. So he's kind of, it's been sort of fed back to me through Devil You Know's guitar player, Francesco, that he's a big fan of like me and the, and the band and stuff, and he wanted to chat. So we we started talking, you know, because he, he sort of expressed an interest in maybe, you know, getting involved because I think ultimately you know, our band is, is... That would be a really, really smart thing, by the way. Yeah. He's like a fucking great dude, and he knows how to he knows how to make things bigger. Yeah, he was definitely enthusiastic when I spoke to him on, on Friday and stuff. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But it was interesting because I, I didn't really... I, I, when you guys mentioned his name and then you were, you, you were sort of seemingly both very pro um this guy uh for a number of reasons i was kind of thinking Hell yeah, absolutely so i skyped him like that that day i heard the thing just saying oh you know do you look after logan and his band and stuff and he's like yeah yeah because I, I said that you guys you know were singing his praises sort of thing so it was cool it was like a validation because it's always a bit testy like i've i've kind of been involved with you know some managers before and it's it's not always been you know, sweetness and light, yeah. you know what I mean? So you kind of, when you meet somebody that says that maybe they can help you out on that kind of level that isn't to do with anything in, in, internally within the band, you start to sort of think, well, I don't know, you know, is this guy kind of on the level? But, I, you know, I've definitely heard from from a few guys, like uh, Chris was talking to Tommy Vexed, uh, he plays in... Um, Westfield I know Massacre. Tommy. Yeah, yeah, he was saying about him, and the name George came up again, and he was like, yeah, the guy's fucking, he's great, he's stand-up dude, he's really passionate about what he does and stuff, so it's cool. Like, Yeah, it's. Uh, I've gone through a lot of different publicists, and uh, I've had a few good experiences and a lot of really bad ones. Same with managers and agents, and uh, when you find one of the good guys, like, it's, I feel like, it's your duty or my duty to spread the word about them. Yeah. Because the I do feel like the music industry gets a bad rap, but at the same time, I also feel like there are quite a few bad seeds in the music industry who it would just be a better place without them. And by promoting the people that are actually good guys, 
getting you know hooking them up with people getting them working together it uh it just makes for a better a better industry for us to all work in yeah. um so yeah i'll always sing george's praises because he basically saved my ass in my career a number of times yeah and, uh helped help build some of my stuff up when nobody else would and uh you know like getting my my guitar album and guitar world things like that um when nobody else was helping out he he did that so yeah he's he's great have I have I sucked his dick enough? On this? <laughs> I don't know, but it's cool. Like, I mean, it's just again, it's kind of the networking thing, you know. It's like because we've got an agent, and I don't know. I'm not going to say what I, th- I think about that scenario, but you know, George actually requested us to do the tour so we're thinking all the time our agents kind of sold it to us going oh yeah we've got you this tour and that and i'm thinking Pff. i spoke to george the other day and he was like oh yeah you know i i loved it you know i i, I requested to get you guys on the on the thing because you know he's he's got an idea of what should be happening as opposed to what is actually happening so it's it's interesting finding somebody's idea of what it is that they think because you know we've We've had a lot of positive feedback about, you know, the band and stuff like that. I think, you know, it's it's definitely probably not the direction that maybe either Chris's fans or my own fans thought that we'd go in working together because both of our projects previous to this were a lot heavier. So, you know, it's definitely more geared up towards writing more commercial-based stuff, which is kind of what we're more influenced by anyway than the, than the outward out-metal thing, although we both you know, do that as well. And I've had enough experience doing that kind of thing. But, but yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because like we've come up a lot against a lot of sort of brick walls and stuff in the UK, especially. Now, I don't know whether the UK is really sort of geared up towards what we do. I mean, there certainly isn't any radio stations playing stuff that we play. Uh, not unless it's like, but you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night when most people aren't listening to the radio anyway. Kind yeah, of thing. totally. You know, it's really not a thing that's pushed here at all. Like, so, you know, with that said, it's, we get good feedback about, oh yeah, you know, great bands, great live, it you know works. And then you get people like managers and labels going, well, it's great, but we just don't know where we could place it in the market. And, and we're just like, well, you don't know, or is it just not like weird enough? Because I think the things that seem to do really well in the UK are kind of like really obscure, kind of weird things that have somehow become commercially viable. I don't know. And then you've just got this influx of like every radio station plays the same you know, Kanye West and, you know, all that sort of stuff, which is fine because that's definitely a much bigger market than, say, where we're sat anyway. But we've, me and Chris have had plenty of conversations thinking, oh, you know, we need to just see if we can start building some contacts and stuff in America, you know, because I think it could definitely be a different set of circumstances for us, you know, probably leaning towards more positive than negative, uh, and it was interesting. I think that sounds about right. Yeah, talking to George kind of solidified that as well. He was like, "Look, you know, I'm not a miracle worker, but you know, I'd really, if if I believe in something, then I, I think I can do something with it." So it was just cool, like in a, in the space of a week, kind of not really knowing something about a guy that that you know it seems interested to to now being fairly confident that he's kind of universally got a you know got people kind of singing his praises and that and that's always a good thing i think uh, that's a really good way to verify things if uh 
I I don't listen if one person says something bad or good. No. But if a bunch of different people say good or something, I'll listen. Yeah. But weirdly, if it's bad, though, like, if it's unanimously I don't bad, I still want to find out for myself if that's the case. Yeah, I don't, I don't listen if... I only listen if it's unanimously good. I don't listen if it's unanimously bad because sometimes unanimously bad just means that someone someone could have been right and they held on to their opinion and were an asshole about it because it was the right decision and everyone else hated them for it. Yeah. Because that happens. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of ego creeps in there, you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, I, I never I never listen to people's shit talk. Like, I never take it seriously because how many times have you met someone and heard that they were a total dick and then you get become friends with them and it's like, nah, this guy's fine. And uh, it, people have said that to me, too, that they heard I was terrible and then they're my friend and they don't understand. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I, I've had that a lot, actually. I think because... I'll tell you what the weird thing is with, with people that, when they meet me, is because most of my lessons and stuff are very kind of serious and, you know, I mean, I, I'm probably not, like, the, the sweetest-looking bloke out there. Um, you know, so... I think the problem is, is people just kind of, they learn off of you, they sit there, they spend hours in front of your content and, and, you know, I suppose quite rightly so in a lot of ways, they feel like they know you. And, like, when you meet somebody in real life and you're kind of a bit goofy or you laugh or you, you just, you're cracking jokes all the time or you're, you know, you're a bit sort of, people are like, wow, this is not what I expected, <laughs> like, at all. But I don't know, like, I mean, I've got... <sighs> kind of just normal really i like having a laugh i like i don't like being a dick to anyone really unless it's for a joke yeah, and then i'll you know you're like a normal human being yeah. imagine that yeah exactly you know but it's kind of odd that the perception people have of what it'd be like to meet you and i think you know there's always this this other thing as well like i mean i have met a few people that are known and you kind of wish that you could rewind and then just not have met them you know, for whatever reason. But then again, sometimes when you meet people, it might be like, you know, backstage on a tour or, you know, there's a lot of press going on or there's just a lot of shit happening. Like if you bump into someone at NAM, right, and they blindside you for whatever reason, I'm probably not going to base my opinion on that person solely for the fact that there's probably a lot going on and for them to just shut all that out and give you exclusive time like to talk or just about nothing yeah it's actually it's kind of selfish yeah to expect them to do that yeah to just like be like hey i have all these meetings planned and getting paged in like eight different directions by people but i'm gonna stop it all and talk to you yeah I've, I mean, someone filmed me doing it at NAMM once, actually. It's probably why I brought it up. But, you know, some guy was going, oh, you know, they were just filming the guitars and stuff. And, and like, I got there and they stopped me in. And uh, it was like, oh, you know, is it caught? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've got to play in it in a bit. But, um, yeah, we can, you know, stop and chat and stuff. And maybe my responses after that seemed evasive, but they really weren't. It's like, you know, we had a couple of minutes just talking about stuff, and I was just like, "Look, man, I've got, I've got to go. I'll, uh, I'll see you later." And I noticed some people in the YouTube comments just basically going, "Oh, Andy James, what a dick! You know, he's got no time for his fans and all this." And I'm like, "No, I was 15 minutes late for a performance I was getting paid for on the ESP stand, and uh, you know, I didn't even have to stop, but I did." <laughs> and it's like, wow, you know, people they just they just see one little bit of a scenario and just that's it, you know. 
But you know, don't Andy, bust the Andy, internet. Andy James, where's your leather pants, man? <laughs> if, you're, if you're gonna act like that, you got to put on those leather pants. Yeah, and, uh, I'll start kicking my pecs into the audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with that, I think uh, that's a good stopping point. I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, any of you out there listening who want to become way, way better at guitar, just go to andyjamesguitaracademy.com and sign up. Yeah, thanks for the plug, mate. <laughs> Any, anytime, dude. Yeah, well, thanks for having us. It's been great, you know, to finally meet and chat and stuff. It's been awesome. Likewise, thank you so much. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top-quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.